Hello, fellow studiers. We're back with our sixth episode of First John Bible Study. Today we're starting with First John chapter 4. If you're just joining us, you may want to go back to the beginning or just jump in wherever. The Word of God is always inspiring. If you are looking for previous episodes, you can look up Zone Logos, Z-O-N, L-O-G-O-S, which stands for the living word in Greek, and I am Amy Clarkson. For those who have commented, I want to thank you. I love hearing which parts of the scripture stands out to you. So continue to keep me posted on how God speaks to you through the scripture. I'm reading from the NIV translation. Feel free to follow along in whatever version you have. But let's start with chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. If you backtrack to chapter 3, the way John ended the last paragraph was saying that this is how we know that he lives in us, that God lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So he's getting ready to go into a little bit more detail about the Holy Spirit, but also false spirits. First, he says, do not believe every spirit. Believe is the Greek word pisteu, which comes from the word faith. It really means to be persuaded or affirmed. So he's telling us not to be persuaded by or affirmed by every spirit. And the spirit here is the word in Greek pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. Notice the similarity to words like pneumonia, which is an infection of the lungs. Makes sense since the Greek word pneuma means wind or breath. Think of this then as something not tangible, right? That's what wind and breath is and would have been to John as well. To help us better define this word spirits, let's look at the second part that says but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. That word test means in the Greek to analyze or examine. Taken in some then, this don't believe every spirit or test the spirit. I think of spirit then as a force or an idea, right? Or the character of, of something. It's, it's not a person as much as it is the intangible belief of something and that's what we're supposed to test so that's the first thing we're supposed to do but then he goes on to say because many false prophets have gone out into the world so not only are we analyzing and examining ideas and knowledge and movements but also people as well false prophets were people that used God's name and yet would teach what is false. It's not the same as Antichrist, which we'll get to later, because a false prophet may actually be using the medium of religion or church to be spreading false doctrine, which is, again, what was happening at the time when John was writing this with the Gnostics. Now, verse 2 is going to tell us how we are supposed to analyze and test and examine ideas and people. Verse 2 says this, This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. 
every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. My version says acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come. Yours might say confess. Some versions say that. The word there confesses homologio, which means to agree or publicly declare. I like that it adds that public declaration, meaning you're not afraid to say something out loud. Your life is showing this public declaration of what? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Some of the versions might say Jesus is the Christ and comes in the flesh. Whether it's Jesus Christ or Jesus is the Christ, there are two ideas here. Remember that Christo or Christ in the Greek means the anointed one, the chosen one. So we're to confess and believe that not only did Christ come in the flesh and was fully man, but he was also the anointed and chosen one of God. Those are two different beliefs. We call that in church lingo the incarnation, when God became man. And that's what John is saying. You have to be able to believe that and confess that publicly, or at least the idea or person or belief or force or character of whatever it is that you're trying to analyze has to have that at its base. John goes on because the opposite is also true. And that's what verse 3 says. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Pretty simple there. Then he says, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Recall that that word Antichrist means against or opposing Christ. And that John is using the word spirit of the Antichrist. He's not saying there's an Antichrist here back then and now. He's saying that the idea, the force, this theology of being against Christ or opposition to Christ is and has been in our world. At first blush, this is just a very generic statement, right? But I was trying to think what it means to be anti-Christ, meaning an idea that is anti-incarnation. That's kind of what he's saying, right? Because that's what it is that we are testing. Can we recognize subtle anti-incarnation ideas out there? Can you think of any? Here's a few that come to my mind. One, anti-incarnation messages that God does not love the world. And from there, I think people extrapolate to God is not good. And then even farther to God cannot exist because he doesn't show us love in the world. However, the incarnation was the ultimate showing of love. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in the next podcast. Here's another anti-incarnation belief out there that everybody's really good and there's no such thing as sin or we don't need to be forgiven. Do you see how that's anti-incarnation? Why would Christ have come and died 
if we didn't have a need to be redeemed. I've got one more that I'm thinking of. An anti-incarnation message is that I am responsible for my own salvation. Meaning, if I do good, if I follow all the rules, then I'm redeemed and saved. Again, if it was up to us, why would Christ have come? So you see, even though we think of this idea of an antichrist, and we think we'll recognize, surely, these messages that go completely against Christianity, I think you have to actually go deep and begin to think about the things we believe in inwardly, these ideas that float around our society, and decide, are they actually an anti-Christ, an anti-incarnation? If you can think of some more, please share in the comments of ways that we subtly deny Jesus is a Christ and came in the flesh for us. Let's move on, though, to verse 4. John says, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. This is one that I have underlined in my Bible because I love the message of this verse. First, John has reverted back to dear children. This is an endearing term, so we know that he is feeling affectionate. When he says we are of God, I think that's a powerful statement. That word that links us and God in the Greek is ek, ek, and it means and denotes where we get our origin. So this is our children of God being offspring of God. But I like that idea of the origin. Our origin is God. We are not God, but we come from God. And what have we done? We have overcome them. Overcome is a word in Greek, nikao, N-I-K-A-O, and it means victory or conquer. And what I found interesting is this is a word that John loves. When you look in the commentaries and in the uh, Greek dictionary for this word and they reference where it's found in the Bible, it's mostly John who's using this word. It's all over Revelation, all over his uh, gospel, and in this book as well. He obviously resonates with this idea that God and Christ is a conqueror and has given victory. And that quite simply is because God is greater, is how my version says it. The Greek for that is megas, M-E-G-A-S. And its definition is large in the widest sense, meaning as big as you can think. He's bigger and he is the ultimate, isn't he? I think sometimes we just need to pause and reflect on that especially when things seem in chaos or, or the future is unknown or we have a crisis going on, to remind ourselves that God has overcome all things and he is greater than the one who is in the world. His sovereignty is beyond anything we can comprehend. Let's move to verse 5. 
They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. Okay, he's now talking about people who are spreading these anti-Christ, anti-incarnation messages. And there's something subtle here. My version says they speak from the viewpoint of the world, but in the Greek, it's actually the word they talk. I know that seems like just a difference of two words that mean the same thing, but in the Greek, talk, L-A-L-E-O, laleo, means to chatter or prattle on and on, and it's being overly talkative. There's a subtlety here that he's saying people of the world just talk, 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 right? And what they're speaking of may not even have much content. It's, it's being overly wordy. I just like that little slight thing in there. It's like saying empty. Their talk is empty and just words. In contrast, he goes on in verse 6, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Notice that John is now including himself in this with that pronoun we. Otherwise, it's the exact same phrase as in verse 4 at the beginning when it says you are of God. Now it's we are of God. It's the same word joining those two, the E-K which denotes origin again. And the way John is phrasing this, he's saying that when the apostles, when you speak, when you teach, it's people who know God, who have experienced God, that tend to listen to the words of God. This is not a know about God. That word know is genosko. It's one of my favorite words. It's G-I-N-O-S-K-O because it implies a knowledge of something or someone by experiencing life together with them. That's my version. It's a because you're close to that thing, now you know about it. So, of course, people that experience God and have walked the journey with God abiding in them, as we've talked about in other chapters, will tend to then listen to other people who are speaking of God. John has just stated something that I think we should reflect on. Have you seen this to be true in your own life or around your own circles? Meaning, have you ever noticed that someone may be resistant to truth or a word from God, or something that just seems absolutely clear to you doesn't seem to be getting in to somebody else. It's almost as if they have a wall up and, and they can't hear what is being said. Well, that's basically what he's explaining. I know it's frustrating when we witness this happening. So what should be our response? John's not talking about this per se, but what can we do? Can you think of some things? One, I think, is through prayer. And if you want to be specific, maybe it's an listening. May they hear. May the reality and the truth actually penetrate in so that they change their lives or come to recognize Christ. 
that's how he ends this little paragraph. He says, this is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Two things. First, I'm going to jump back to John's gospel, chapter 10, and read from verse 3 and 4 to see if this sounds familiar. Remember, same author here, saying it in a different way as he's quoting a story that Christ was saying to the disciples. Verse 3 of chapter 10 in the book of John. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. What I like about this little parable is it's describing what John was saying in a lot more technical terms. He's talking about if we know God and therefore we have a relationship with him, we'll recognize his voice. And if we don't know God, we won't recognize his voice. But just picture this as the sheep. They have a relationship with their shepherd, right? They know their shepherd. They've spent time with their shepherd enough to heed that voice, to recognize that voice, and then easily follow versus a strange voice to them they would not follow. Well, it's the same way with both of these groups of people, with the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. It's what we're used to. It's what we put in our hearts and our brains and, and, and meditate on and think on. Of course, those are what we're going to, that's the, the message we're going to recognize and follow. Now, this last verse, I just want to point out, because it's a little bit tough to understand who John is talking to when he says that this is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Since he was just talking about listening and hearing, there's two ways to think of this. Is the emphasis on those who are giving the message or is the emphasis on those who are listening to the message? Meaning, which group of people is to know the spirit of truth, that we know spirit of truth versus spirit of falsehood. And I'll just say this, the spirit of truth, again, is that idea of reality in that Greek word of truth. And then the spirit of falsehood, some of yours might say spirit of error. The Greek word for there is plane, P-L-A-N-E. And it means to be deviant or to have a departure or a wandering away. So it's not an evilness. We're not talking about the spirit of good and evil. We're talking about reality and this kind of departure from reality or a wandering away or deviating from what is real and what is true. Back to that first question though. Are we trying to recognize people who are listening to these messages as being of truth or falsehood or are we trying to recognize the actual speakers and teachers like the apostles. Well, the commentators think that this is not talking about the listeners here as much as it is the speakers. I know this is confusing. So in other words, this does not mean that if you hear or listen to the apostles, you are of truth. You may be, may not be. What he's really trying to say is that's how we know that the apostles or teachers or people who are giving a message have the spirit of truth. It's because 
the people that are hearing them are children of God. Here's a final way to talk about this. Look at who's listening to the message. Look at who's following somebody. So somebody has a great idea. Somebody says, this is my truth. This is my um, message. Who are the listeners? Who are the followers? And are the people who are following that message or that idea people that you want to be like? Are they living lives that you want to emulate? Are they people of children of God, meaning are they of character and integrity and of love? That may be one way to help analyze these two groups. I hope that gives you something to think about. We're going to stop for now, and next week we'll take on more discussion from John about love and God being love and we being called to love others. But enjoy the week. We'd love to hear your comments, and thanks for spending your time listening to this.